Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast, based on the Morning Report series from Elsevier. This podcast has been adapted for audio in collaboration with series editor, Dr. Raj Dasgupta, as well as the volume editor for each book. Each episode features an in-depth case dissection format and aims to deliver practical, concise, and easy to digest information. And now, here's today's episode. Hi everyone, this is Paul Frank. Today we'll be discussing case nine, labor epidural from our textbook, Anesthesiology and Critical Care Morning Report, Beyond the Pearls. Our patient is a 26-year-old premigravid woman at 39 weeks and 4 days gestation who was presenting with 6 hours of cramping abdominal pain and a large gush of clear fluid 1 hour ago. She is otherwise healthy and takes only a daily prenatal vitamin. She denies vaginal bleeding or loss of fetal movement. Her vital signs are blood pressure 107 over 68 millimeters of mercury, pulse 78 per minute, respirations 18 per minute, oxygen saturation 99% on room air, and temperature 36.9 degrees Celsius. Her cervix is dilated to 3 centimeters and is 40% effaced, and the fetus is at minus 1 station. What are the stages of labor, and what stage of labor is our patient in? Labor is generally divided into 3 or 4 stages. For our purposes, we will divide labor into 4 stages. The first stage of labor has two parts to it the latent phase and the active phase. During the latent phase of the first stage of labor, uterine contractions increase in frequency and intensity, and there is moderate cervical change. During the active phase of the first stage of labor, the rate of cervical change increases and the cervix dilates to 10 centimeters. During the second stage of labor, the fetus descends into the pelvis and ultimately the fetus is delivered. During the third stage of labor, the placenta is delivered. And finally, during the fourth stage of labor, there is a reestablishment of uterine tone. Our patient is in the first stage of labor. The patient is complaining of back pain. Is that normal? What causes pain during labor? During the first stage of labor, pain is caused by dilation of the lower uterus and the cervix. The lower uterus and the cervix are innervated by visceral nerves. Pain transmitted by these fibers is poorly localized, and it is common that pain during the first stage of labor is referred to the back. During the second stage of labor, pain, as during the first stage, is caused by lower uterine and cervical dilation. However, there is also now distension of the vagina, pelvic floor, and perineum during the second stage. The vagina, the pelvic floor, and the perineum are innervated by somatic nerves, and this pain is well localized. What techniques are available to treat pain during labor? Systemic opioids can be administered intravenously or intramuscularly. 
These can cause maternal respiratory depression. Additionally, they can easily cross the placenta and cause fetal respiratory depression as well as a decrease in fetal heart rate. Therefore, they should be avoided late in labor and just prior to delivery. However, a small dose of short-acting opioid early in labor is generally considered safe. Another option for pain control is inhaled nitrous oxide, N2O. This is generally administered via face mask in a solution of 50% nitrous oxide and 50% oxygen. Inhaled nitrous oxide provides a fast onset of analgesia, however there is a high instance of maternal nausea. The gold standard of pain control during labor is neuraxial anesthesia, most commonly an epidural or a combined spinal epidural. What are the differences between an epidural and a spinal? They differ in their mode of administration. An epidural involves placement of a catheter to allow for continuous or repeated dosing of medication, whereas a spinal is generally administered as a single injection. They differ in their anatomic location. As the name implies, an epidural catheter is placed in the epidural space between the ligamentum flavum and the dura mater. Meanwhile, a spinal is injected into the thecal sac in solution with cerebrospinal fluid. They differ in their primary site of action. An epidural acts on spinal nerve roots, while a spinal acts on the spinal cord. They differ in the most common type of needle used for the procedures. An epidural is generally placed with a 17 or 18 gauge TUI needle, whereas a spinal is placed with a blunt tip spinal needle. They differ in their time to block onset. An epidural will take 10 to 20 minutes for full effect, while a spinal will take 2 to 8 minutes for full effect. Finally, only spinals but not epidurals, are affected by the baricity of solution. What is baricity? How does it affect the spread of spinal anesthesia? Baricity is the density of the spinal anesthetic solution relative to that of the cerebrospinal fluid, the CSF. A hyperbaric solution is denser than CSF and will travel to more dependent regions. An isobaric solution is the same density as CSF. Finally, a hypobaric solution is less dense than CSF and will travel to less gravity-dependent regions. So for example, say you have a patient in the left lateral decubitus position, in other words, left hip down, right hip up, and you inject a hyperbaric spinal solution. That solution will travel to the more dependent regions of the spinal cord. In this case, it will affect the left side more than the right side and provide better analgesia on the left. What dermatomal levels must be covered by neuraxial anesthesia for labor and delivery? What about for a cesarean delivery? Pain from the first stage of labor arises from visceral innervation that corresponds to spinal levels T10 to L1. Pain from the second stage of labor arises from somatic innervation that corresponds to spinal levels S2 to S4. Therefore, for labor and delivery, a neuraxial anesthetic must cover spinal levels T10 through S4. For a cesarean delivery, neuraxial anesthetic should cover as cephalad as T4. What are the potential complications of epidural placement? There is a risk of bleeding in the epidural space leading to an epidural hematoma. There is a risk of infection in the epidural space leading to an epidural abscess. Both of these are neurosurgical emergencies. There is also a risk of dural puncture where the TUI needle inadvertently pokes through the dura. This can result in a postdural puncture headache, or even worse, inadvertent placement of the epidural catheter intrathecally. Dosing of this catheter can result in a total spinal. When during labor should an epidural be placed? 
There are no strict guidelines, and in general, patient request is an appropriate indication. However, we always need to be wary of contraindications such as coagulopathy and overlying infection. It is also important that the patient be aware of the potential interventions that will follow an epidural placement, things such as dietary restriction, bed rest, and insertion of a urinary catheter. Patient requests an epidural. What are the steps in epidural catheter placement? After obtaining consent from the patient, position her in the sitting position. Apply a sterile prep solution and then a sterile drape to her lower back. Palpate her iliac crest bilaterally. These will generally correspond to the L4-5 interspace. Infiltrate the skin and subcutaneous tissue at this level with local anesthetic, usually 1 or 2% lidocaine. Insert the two-way needle with the stylet still in the needle into the skin and advance until it feels as though the tip of the needle has engaged with a dense structure, which is usually a ligament. Next, remove the stylet from the needle and attach the syringe filled with air or with air and saline. Next, advance the two-way needle with the syringe attached by one to two millimeters at a time and attempt to depress the plunger. When the plunger of the syringe depresses easily, this is known as loss of resistance and it usually means that the tip of your needle is in the epidural space. Remove the syringe from your needle and thread the epidural catheter through the needle into the epidural space. While holding the catheter in place, remove the TUI needle. Next, attach a syringe to the end of the catheter and aspirate to ensure that there is not return of blood or cerebrospinal fluid. Finally, administer a test dose of medication through the catheter and apply a sterile dressing. What is a test dose and why is it necessary? A test dose is a small bolus of short-acting local anesthetic, usually 1.5 or 2% lidocaine, mixed with epinephrine. The goal of a test dose is to ensure that the catheter is not inside of a blood vessel or in the CSF space. When you inject the test dose, if the catheter is intravascular, the epinephrine will enter the bloodstream and cause tachycardia. If the catheter is intrathecal within the CSF space, the local anesthetic will quickly cause a dense motor and sensory block. If, after your test dose, you suspect that the catheter is intravascular or intrathecal, remove it. Assuming a midline approach to epidural catheter placement, what structures does your two-way needle tip pass through on its way to the epidural space? It will pass through the skin and subcutaneous tissue, then the supraspinous ligament, then the interspinous ligament, then ligamentum flavum, and then it will enter the epidural space. The test dose is negative. Five minutes after epidural placement, the patient is still awaiting pain relief. What techniques could have provided faster analgesia? Remember, a bolus of medication through an epidural catheter can take 10 to 20 minutes for full effect. A combined spinal epidural, CSE, offers the fast onset of a spinal as well as the ability to redose medications as in an epidural. To place a CSE, use the loss of resistance technique to position your 2E needle in the epidural space. However, before threading your epidural catheter through the 2E needle, place a long spinal needle through the 2E needle and inject a dose of spinal anesthetic into the CSF space. Then withdraw the spinal needle and thread the epidural catheter through the 2E needle. A dural puncture epidural, DPE, is similar to a CSE. However, when you use the spinal needle to go through the two-way needle and enter the CSF space, no medication is administered. The goal here is simply to make a small puncture in the dura. 
What kinds of medication are given via an epidural catheter? An ideal epidural block has maximal sensory blockade and minimal motor blockade. For these reasons, bupivacaine and ropivacaine are frequently used for labor epidurals. Opioids can also be administered via epidural. Alpha-2 agonists can be administered via an epidural. However, because they cause hypotension and bradycardia, they are generally not recommended for obstetric patients. You administer a bolus of ropivacaine and fentanyl via the epidural catheter. 30 minutes later, the patient says her pain is nearly gone, but now she feels itchy. What's going on? Diffuse itchiness or pruritus is a common side effect of epidural opioid administration. Will an antihistamine such as diphenhydramine be helpful? No. Opioid-induced pruritus is poorly understood but is not mediated by histamine release. Opioid antagonists such as naloxone or a partial opioid agonists are more effective in this scenario. After another bolus of ropivacaine via the epidural, the patient's blood pressure drops to 82 over 40 millimeters of mercury and her heart rate increases to 105 beats per minute. What can you do? Neuraxial anesthesia commonly causes hypotension due to blockade of sympathetic nerves, known as a sympathectomy. Arterial vasodilation results in a drop in systemic vascular resistance. Venodilation results in a decrease in venous return and a drop in preload. Both of these things contribute to hypotension. To treat this patient, give intravenous fluids and phenylephrine. In fact, most institutions give patients a bolus of 500 milliliters or one liter of intravenous fluid prior to epidural placement in anticipation of this sympathectomy. Additionally, the gravid uterus can compress the inferior vena cava and reduce venous return to the heart. Tilt the patient to her left side to offload the uterus off of the vena cava. This is known as left uterine displacement. Antiemetic agents such as ondansetron may also be helpful. The patient's blood pressure improves with a bolus of intravenous fluid. The patient's cardiotocograph is shown below. What is a cardiotocograph and how do you interpret this one? A cardiotocograph shows fetal heart rate and uterine contractions along the same time axis. This allows for analysis of the temporal relationship between uterine contractions and fetal heart rate. A normal fetal heart rate varies between 110 and 160 beats per minute. Our patient's cardiotocograph shows that the fetal heart rate decreases with the start of every uterine contraction and returns back to baseline at the end of every uterine contraction. This pattern is known as early decelerations. Early decelerations are a result of a transient vagal response in the fetus, and these are a reassuring finding. What if the cardiotocograph looked like this one? The cardiotocograph shown on this slide shows that the fetal heart rate starts to decrease towards the end of every uterine contraction and returns to baseline only after every uterine contraction has ended. This pattern is known as late decelerations. Late decelerations are caused by insufficient oxygen supply to the fetus, also known as uteroplacental insufficiency. This is a non-reassuring finding. What if the cardiotocograph looked like this? The cardiotocograph shown on this slide shows rapid drops in fetal heart rate not associated with the pattern of uterine contractions. This is known as variable decelerations. Variable decelerations are caused by umbilical cord compression. While this may be well tolerated by a healthy fetus, this is considered a non-reassuring finding. 
Four hours later, the patient has a temperature of 38.1 degrees Celsius and a newly elevated white blood cell count of 26,000. The fetus is tachycardic. What's going on? These findings are consistent with an intraamniotic infection, also known as chorioamnionitis. Early antibiotic therapy with ampicillin and gentamicin is indicated. Should you remove the epidural catheter since the patient has chorioamnionitis? No, there is no need to remove the epidural catheter, especially since antibiotic therapy has started. In patients with systemic infection, neuraxial anesthesia may be considered on a case-by-case -case basis. The baby is delivered 36 hours after the start of labor. One minute after delivery, the baby's heart rate is 76 beats per minute and his respirations are irregular. His body is pink, but his limbs are dusky and he is limp. He does not respond to suctioning. What are the components of an APGAR score and what is this baby's APGAR score? The APGAR score is a quick way to assess whether a neonate requires resuscitation. There are five categories within the APGAR score. For each category, a reassuring finding is awarded two points, whereas a non-reassuring finding is awarded one point, and a most concerning finding is awarded zero points. The five categories for the APGAR score are heart rate, respiratory status, color, muscle tone, and grimace or other response to suctioning. Our patient's APGAR score is only three. This baby requires immediate resuscitation. The mother is stable, and one of your anesthesiology colleagues takes over her care while you resuscitate the baby. What should you do? Start by suctioning the baby's airway and stimulating the baby. Next, begin bag mask ventilation. Start with a recruitment maneuver holding 30 centimeters water of pressure for 5 seconds, and then continue at 40 to 60 breaths per minute. Bag mask ventilation should continue until the heart rate is greater than 100 beats per minute. You should ventilate with the FiO2 as close to room air as possible. Higher FiO2 increases the risk of morbidity and mortality. An assistant puts a pulse oximeter probe on the baby's left hand. What should you do? Move the probe to the baby's right hand. You need to know the oxygen saturation in the right upper extremity because it receives preductal blood, just like the heart and the brain. Therefore, the oxygen saturation measured in the right upper extremity is the same as what the heart and the brain receive. Preductal blood is blood that has been ejected from the left ventricle into the ascending aorta and the aortic arch before potentially mixing with deoxygenated blood from the ductus arteriosus. Describe fetal circulation. Oxygen diffuses from maternal blood to fetal blood through the placenta. Oxygenated fetal blood travels from the placenta to the fetus via the umbilical vein. Blood flows from the right ventricle to the systemic circulation bypassing the fetal lungs by two right-to-left shunts, the foramen ovale and the ductus arteriosus. The foramen ovale is an opening in the interatrial septum between the right atrium and the left atrium. The ductus arteriosus is a shunt between the pulmonary artery and the aorta. Deoxygenated fetal blood travels from the fetus to the placenta via the umbilical arteries. Despite positive pressure ventilation, the baby's heart rate drops to 55 beats per minute. What should you do? Since the heart rate is less than 60 beats per minute, intubation and chest compressions are indicated. Chest compressions should be administered at a rate of 90 compressions per minute. Respirations should be administered at a rate of 30 breaths per minute. The baby's condition improves and he is admitted to the neonatal intensive care unit. On postpartum day one, the mother complains of new numbness and burning over her right anterolateral thigh. What's going on? 
These symptoms are likely caused by compression of the lateral femoral cutaneous nerve. This is the most common obstetric neurologic injury, and it is self-resolving. What other nerve injuries are common in parturients? Obturator nerve injury presents with sensory changes over the medial thigh and weakness of hip adduction. There is a higher risk of obturator nerve injury with forceps delivery. Common peroneal nerve injury presents with sensory changes over the anterolateral calf and weakness on foot dorsiflexion, also known as foot drop. There is a higher risk of common peroneal nerve injury with prolonged lithotomy positioning, squatting, or pressure on the lateral knee. Femoral nerve injury presents as weakness on hip flexion. There is a higher risk of femoral nerve injury with prolonged flexion, abduction, or external rotation of the hip. Fortunately, all of these injuries are transient and self-resolving. Beyond the Pearls The American Society of Regional Anesthesia and Pain Medicine, ASRA, has published guidelines regarding the minimum duration of time between anticoagulant and neuraxial placement and removal. The primary factor that affects the spread of a block in epidural anesthesia is the volume of solution that is administered. A given dose of epidural medication will have a greater height, greater spread, in pregnant patients compared to non-pregnant patients. This may be due to engorged epidural veins that compress the epidural space. A full or partial separation of the placenta from the decidua basalis is known as a placental abruption. Common findings include vaginal bleeding, uterine tenderness, and non-reassuring cardiotocograph. However, the absence of these findings does not rule out placental abruption. If opioid intoxication is suspected after delivery of a newborn, supportive care is indicated. Opioid antagonists should not be given to neonates. Opioid reversal in neonates can cause seizures and worsen hypoxic neurological injury. The only veins that carry oxygenated blood are the umbilical vein in fetal circulation and the pulmonary veins in adult circulation. If you'd like to learn more about this and other topics, read our book. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis.